John chapter 12. John chapter 12, I'll read the verses again, 12 through 24. Excuse me, 20 through 24. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, uh, verily, verily, I say to you, um, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. It bears much fruit. Is another translation. There's a contrast here in verse 24, but if it dies, it produces much grain. It assumes something, it assumes that the grain or the seed falls into the earth. And if you're thinking about this, and I thought about this, and I, I don't think I could f- find any help in the commentary, so I can't, it's not my view. But it, it might be wondering if this falling to the earth is actually the incarnation itself, or is it the death and then the resurrection of Christ? I, I think at least it refers to the death and resurrection of Christ. Could it refer to the whole incarnation? It could. Does it? I don't know. Um, I know what it does refer to, at least to the death and resurrection of Christ. It assumes that a grain has fallen or a seed has fallen into the earth. Now, the, the incarnation view is kind of st- is strengthened by considering this. He died and then he fell into the earth. But he had to become incarnate first, then he dies, and then he falls into the earth? Or is the incarnation a fall into the earth itself? I like the death-resurrection view here. When seeds are planted in dirt, they shed their shell and grow sprouts, then plants which bear fruit. I think that's what the analogy is here. So what's his point? Uh, If it dies, it bears much fruit. The seed, excuse me, his point is this, that seeds and planting them and their development tell us everything we need to know about his glory? No. It's an illustration, remember? And we've got to be careful with it. But they can illustrate aspects of what it means for our Lord to be glorified. The hour has come for me to bear much fruit, we'll say, by virtue of my death, resurrection, and I want to attach to that ascension, coronation, session, and ultimately coming and consummation. 
The hour has come. So this is a, a redemptive historical clock striking midnight kind of thing. This is a big issue. J.C. Ryle says, Unless I die, whatever you in your private opinion may think, my purpose in coming into the world will not be accomplished. But if I die, multitudes of souls will be saved. We could put it this way. The hour has certainly arrived for my being glorified. I am about to finish the work I came to do. I'm about to leave the world. I am about to ascend to my Father and be highly exalted. My earthly ministry of humiliation is coming to an end, and my time of glory is drawing nigh. But all this is to be brought about in a way very different from that which you are thinking about. Remember, I mentioned it last week, when Jesus says in Matthew 16 to Peter, But who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood, Jesus says, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then Jesus reminds him, I must suffer uh, and, uh, in Jerusalem and, and, and be buried and raised on the third day. And then Jesus, uh, Peter answers, God forbid it, Lord. Remember that? Then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. They weren't thinking, they weren't connecting the dots yet. Jesus said several times, either that Scripture says he is to suffer and be raised on the third day, or he just said it himself. Either he invokes Scripture, the Old Testament, Or he just states the fact himself that he must suffer and enter glory, suffer and be raised, suffer and be raised on the third day. He told him before it all happened. And yet constantly, and Peter's the quintessential example of not connecting the dots until it actually happened. So now when he says the hour has come, he's telling them he's going to die. I think he's insinuating as well, because for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's going to conquer death as well, and then he's going to be rewarded for his obedience. He's going to not sin and therefore not fall short of glory. He's going to merit glory according to his human nature for us and for our salvation. And he does that by virtuing of his suffering obedience unto death, even death on a cross. And he's rewarded for that with life. And then upon that, and that's called his glory as well. And then he ascends, and then he's coronated, and he sits down, and the session between the comings um, starts to unravel. And we're actually the fruit of that session, that kingship, that royal scepter that the Son of God has ruling the people of God and causing the gospel to bear fruit all over the world. But they they didn't, you know, we're over here. We're outside the New Testament itself. They were witnessing the incarnate Son of God who kept telling them, I am that which was promised, but it they didn't get it all at once. And so we have these 
snippets, which either we can scoff at them and say, you dummies, or we can say, they're a lot like me. They didn't get it. They're still putting the pieces of the puzzle together. But by the time, you know, the ascension occurs and Pentecost come, the apostles have this special endowment. The lights started to go off in their heads and they started to connect more dots. But until then, um, they weren't getting it. So he uses an illustration, interestingly. How much did they meditate upon this illustration before John's gospel was written? You know, we don't know, but we know from other texts that they were engaging with each other between the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. He even taught them before he could have brought this up. We don't know. Maybe he did bring it up, and then maybe even on the road, maybe even, I sound like Spurgeon, could it be uh, that uh, on the road to Damascus, when he slays the Apostle Paul, he uses an illustration like this to depict his death, resurrection, ascension, coronation session, coming glory. And that's why Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians 15, because we might get there, we might not get there. But Paul picks up the similar language using an analogy from nature, creatures, um, harvesting, fruit bearing, And he relates that to our Lord. Where did Paul get it from? Could have got it from the Lord? Um, I don't think we're told everything Jesus taught him um, that you can read about in Acts 9. He could have got it from the apostles later. Uh, Maybe a version of the Gospel of John was written relatively early and Paul had it. We, we, We don't know, but we do know this much. Jesus uses an analogy from nature that Paul ends up picking up in 1 Corinthians 15 about harvest fruit bearing, which assumes a plant or a tree, and which assumes uh, soil and seeds put in it, and germination, you know, and all that stuff, and stuff, things coming up out of the ground. Could that be resurrection? As things coming up out of the ground are illustrations of resurrection. I didn't want to go there. Okay, we will. 1 Corinthians 15. I'd almost have to read the whole chapter, but I'm not. I want to point something out here, because here's this analogy from nature that uh, Jesus uses. Paul picks it up. Notice uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, so we have death, burial, and now we have, and, he was, and, he, and that he rose again, now we have resurrection, the third day according to the Scriptures. So we have third day resurrection of our Lord, which is according to the Scriptures, and I think he means according to the Scriptures of the Old Testament, but it's also according to the scriptures of the New Testament as well, the Gospel of Matthew several times, uh, for example, and and Luke as well. But now, if you notice, if you keep going, um, okay, where's the first fruits? Hmm. 
verse 42, someplace over there. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. Sounds like a seed. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The natural is first, and then the spiritual. Very interesting. But there's an analogy between the natural and the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is Lord from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also... Uh, so, so also are those who are made of dust, and as, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, that didn't have the first Has anybody found the first fruit? Thank you. But now, there it is. Christ is risen. Actually, that's helpful because there's, there's analogy between natural and spiritual going on there, right? Going all the way back to the first man who came from dirt. And then he goes back into dirt after he dies as a form of judgment. And then he, in the last Adam, comes up out of the dirt victorious. You'll never think of dirt the same way anymore. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first, here it is, Fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for since by man came death, going all the way back to the first Adam, by man, last Adam, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So there's the analogy picked up again. Uh, the later text, latter text that I read, there, 41 and following, or 42 and following, uses nature, uh, natural and spiritual. And some of these analogies, some of these illustrations he's using, you have to, to find them in Scripture, that which they are echoing. You've got to go all the way back before the fall into sin, which is... Very interesting. And this is chapter 15, a chapter expounding upon the third day resurrection of our Lord according to the scriptures. Now, the fact that he uses these, that illustration, and Jesus does too, fascinates me. Especially in 1 Corinthians 15, where he goes back all the way back to Genesis, very clearly, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he brings up the language of dirt and harvest and fruit-bearing, at least by assumption. And all in the context of third-day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God. Right? 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul somehow, someway picks up an analogy that Jesus actually uses here in John chapter 12. I want you to listen to something. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, 
and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the which day? Which day of creation was that? Third day. Now, just to tell you, some of my dead friends make the connection. I didn't say I'm making it. I said some of my dead friends, trusted friends, uh, make that connection. And I think we struggle with it. I've said this before, okay? We struggle with that because we go, wait a minute, that's before the fall into sin. Nothing before the fall into sin can, can picture redemptive realities. That's what most people's default is. Nothing before Genesis 3 can picture post-Genesis 3 redemptive realities. That's our, I think, most people's default. I'm trying to clear you of that default. It's a bad default because... If you read the Bible, Adam before he fell was a type of Christ. If you read the Bible, the first marriage was a type of Christ and the church. Who was Christ? Adam. Who was the church? Eve. Right at the end of Ephesians 5, remember how Paul does that? And he goes back to Genesis 3. No, he goes back to Genesis 2. He says, this is what I'm talking about. This mystery is great, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He references Genesis 2.24, the marriage text from Genesis 2, before they fell into sin, as as a picture, a type if you want, of a redemptive reality even before the fall into sin occurred. That's Paul. Paul does that, okay? It's not just me imposing it. That's the way the apostle thought about a prelapsarian institution that actually was symbolic of or pointed to a post-lapsarian redemptive institution, the church. So if, if Paul can do it there, or if God does it like that, because God's revealing his mind to us through the apostles' writing, could it be that other pre-fall, pre-sin, creational either institutions or even the natural world order in some weird way like plants or seeds going into the dirt and dying and then coming out and bearing fruit, could those somehow, some way be intended ultimately in the mind of, the, of God to be a natural illustration of a spiritual reality. Do you see, you see how those weirdos in the Middle Ages and the patristics did their exegesis? They were all doing all this allegory stuff, right? Making things up. One of our sisters came to me during the break and said something like this. We're supposed to die to ourselves daily, right? Yes. And we are to live unto God as well, right? So we have death and life 
going on all the time as Christians. We're dying and we're living. We're putting off, we're putting on. That was her suggestion, I'm not making, I'm just telling you what the conversation was about. But it's interesting, some of the things you can start to tie together and it makes you wonder, is this like a whole system of divine truth uh, presented to us so that we do think more deeply sometimes about even about nature. Now, we can't just look at nature and go, oh, the incarnation. It has to be revealed to us. Okay, you don't look at a tr- tree and conclude trinity. You read the Bible and you go, oh, God's three in one. You read the Bible and go, oh, the incarnation. But once we've read the Bible and concluded orthodox, orthodoxally, uh, trinity and incarnation, could there be, they call them vestiges out there in the created order that for Christians illumined by the Spirit through the Word of God can appreciate things out there in a way different than others? Could it be? And I think the answer is, yeah. But it's not the gospel in the... You ever heard that book, The Gospel in the Stars? Uh, who is that guy? He used to promote that stuff. He should have known better. He was in a Westminster Confession of Faith denomination. The guy in Florida, not R.C. Sproul. Anyway, somebody wrote a book, I think in the 19th century, The Gospel and the Stars, that you can conclude the gospel by staring at the stars or something like that, which is just silly, okay? I'm not saying that. I am saying he uses these natural illustrations. They're out there. They're readily at hand. He uses them. Paul picks it up, and Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians 15 in a context where he's referring to pre-fall things as pointing forward. And he does the same thing in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. You see, this is what happens when I say I'm not going to do something, then I do it. I just did it. That was everything I didn't want to say. So what do I want to say? I want to say, hopefully you can see those connections. And uh, I, th- I think at least, I think they're real. They're, they're there. They're, you can, I'm making them because it's the way the words go, as they say, these scripture texts. So all this is an illustration of verse 24 of the fruit bearing of the incarnate Son of God um, by virtue of his sufferings unto death his victory over death, resurrection, um, ascension, coronation, session, and coming again. He illustrates it by having us go think about seeds. A little mundane kind of thing, right? But when you think about what he's illustrating, he's illustrating the power of the incarnation, the power of his sufferings, the effects Fruit, the effects produced by virtue of assuming our nature, assuming our duties, assuming our liabilities, and being rewarded for it, and conferring then, then all the benefits of that merit to unworthy sinners who are thankful but never thankful enough. Now, how many here would have said, no, I, I, I was thankful enough last week. Well, how about next week being more than enough, more than thankful, so I can purchase some of your 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 merit that's excessive that you don't need since you're so thankful. 
Nobody wants that in their right mind is going to go, oh, I was, I was plenty thankful last week. I don't need to be more thankful. We should be very thankful. The, you know, the, you know the, the illuminating power of the Spirit of God, and it's happened to us in different ways at different ages, I get it. But um, when it's all said and done, it's not like we invited the effectual call, okay? God, would you please effectually call me? No. It doesn't, it's mysterious and invisible. It comes out of nowhere, you know, this convicting work of the Spirit um, and, and humbling uh, of us and, and recognition that it's way worse than I thought. And, and some people grovel for a while. Read testimonies of, or heard testimonies of people walking around blind in the dark, realizing they're guilty and sinful and deserving of, of judgment and hell for weeks, months, and probably years. That's a terrible thing. Other people, pretty fast. Somebody gives them the gospel and, the, and they start to realize it really relatively quickly. But none of those people in their right minds go, I caused this to happen. This, this Christianity thing in my life, it's all about me. I'm the one that makes it work. I'm the effective cause of my own salvation. I have merited this. I'm a goody two-shoes. I'm actually better than you think. You think I'm good, I'm way better. You know, no, nobody, at least in the right mind, should talk like that. It should just be the office, opposite. We are fruit. We are effect. Of, of a causer. We are caused to first exist, sustained, and then caused to be in Christ. If you are in Christ, it's his doing, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. It doesn't say, if you are in Christ, congratulations, pat yourself on the back. You got mystically united to the Savior through faith. You affected the bond between you, the Savior, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because you are so spiritually good and powerful. No can he think that way. We should think just the opposite. Like, uh, I'm not what I was, you know, the John Newton thing. I'm not what I will be. I'm not what I ought to be either. But I am what I am by the grace of God. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. You know, that should be our answer. So may we be grateful and thankful and learn more than I'm able to teach you about these things. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that the death of the Son of God bears much fruit. He was slain. He did purchase for God with his own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The Son of Man's death involves a purchase. He owns those for whom he died. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We are to glorify God in our body and in our souls. We know this ought is placed upon us. 
We don't always do it well. Please forgive us and help us to live as blood-bought slaves and servants of our Savior who came to give his life a ransom for many, who came not to be served, but to serve. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.